I am Jesse Mesotovis, and this is who I am. Part two of the interview with the visual effects artist Jesse Mesotovis. And yeah. did that lead into Battlestar Galactica there? Or? Oh, yeah. That, oh, man. Um, this is another tale of tragedy. <laughs> 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 no, two more working tragedies. Mm. Even though I, I think this is terrible. I can't, I will repeat this. I, I paint it as a tragedy, but I love everyone involved. <laughs> you know, even the people that got angry with me, I still love them to this day. Uh, after UFO, PJ Foley, uh, who was the producer, visual effects producer at UFO, left with uh, one of the other producers to form a new production company, like a full production company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they ended up working on uh, a movie. They, they picked up a movie from the first winners of the first season, I think, of Project Greenlight, Ephraim mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Patel and uh, Kyle Rankin. I think that was his name. Uh, I didn't know Kyle that well, but I got to work with Ephraim a lot. Uh, the movie was uh, Infestation, and it starred Ray Wise. Mm. You know, I was like, Ray Wise? You mean the guy in RoboCop? That guy, the Twin Peaks, Ray Wise? I'm like, that Ray Wise? I'm like, hell yeah, let's do this. <laughs> um, I left UFO uh, to work on that with them. And then uh, that that really only lasted like nine months, maybe eight, nine months. Um you know, it, was, it was just like UFO in that they were trying to take on very small projects. It was a very small place. It was in the old Sunset and Gower building mm-hmm. uh, in Hollywood, which I, I love the building for its history, and I hate that they tore it down to make, mm. you know, basically a sushi bar. Yeah. You know, like, whatever. <laughs> sucks. You know, that's what really L.A. really needed, another sushi bar. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It might be a great place, but I don't care. I used to work there, and I love that old building. Yeah, you know, Art Deco style, you know, it was pink and ugly from the outside. But if you've ever been in it, mm-hmm. it was like a bank vault. Yeah. You know, it was like this, it feels solid and it's a great building. Yeah. It's part of that beautiful line as well that goes down yeah. to like Paramount and where you yeah. can actually see the sign and you can see the whole. It feels like you're feel, in Hollywood. Yeah. Exactly. You know, not, you know, anywhere strip mall USA, which mm-hmm. is what they have now. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I went to, it was called Dilated Pixels. Um, Kind of an, is, <laughs> I, I have this weird pattern of companies I worked for. I started at Visionscape Imaging, went to Foundation Imaging, ended up at Dilated Pixels, and then worked at a company later called Amalgamated Pixels. <laughs> <laughs> so if they're in that, I don't switch companies right away unless you you have the same yeah name of some kind. But yeah, from uh, Dilated Pixels, I ended up at uh, Amalgamated Pixels working on a really interesting, really difficult projection uh themed entertainment uh project it was for a a casino in macau Hmm. where they wanted as a showpiece to their entrance uh this animated dome like a 200 foot wide or circumference 100 foot wide dome you know or something it may have been like 80 feet high or something like that Mm -hmm. can't remember the measurements but to project off Christy, these giant new Christie projectors, this immersive movie hmm. yeah, with feature, uh, featuring basically at projected, projected size, life-size Chinese dragons, hmm. like uh, uh, representing north, south, east, west, or whatever. 
And, you know, I didn't actually get to work or animate any of the dragons, but my job was kind of even more ridiculous in terms of scale. I was supposed to animate these uh, choirs of mermaids, an orchestra, basically, of mermaids coming out playing traditional Chinese erhu, you know, violin mm-hmm. instruments or, or and other, you know, traditional instruments as the dragons are, you know, dancing around or doing their thing and telling a story. And I'm like... You want me to do what? <laughs> How many? You know, like, all right. I, I figure I can make like uh, 20 or 30 animation cycles. And if you give me the soundtrack, I can time a lot of movement. I can sequence the movements. So it was sort of like, all right, this is impossible. Just do your best. <laughs> you know, and end up getting scaled back, scaled back, scaled back. And I'll tell this story as innocently as possible because it's, really grandiose to me it's another tragedy of work life (laughs) because there was a day of reviews where i had just finished animating all the mermaids around each gate they did their thing they jumped into this or not jumped but they swam into the scene they played their instruments and then swam out so it was like a one-act thing and as the director's watching this he's shaking his head like yeah yeah this is okay yeah that's good yeah all right, we talked about that yesterday. Yeah, this is good. It felt like a real meeting. Mm-hmm. And then the the producer comes in to review everything like the following couple of days. And they come around the review right at my computer. I'm standing there, or I'm sitting there with the director s- sitting right next to me, the producer standing behind me, my producer standing behind me, my boss standing behind me, and the owner of the company standing behind me with the production assistant taking notes on everything being said. And two days earlier, you know, he, while he was shaking his head, yeah, this is good, this is good. At this new meeting with all the important people lying around, he's like, yeah, this is not what I, we were looking for at all. And I was like, I looked at him like, and I, these were my exact words, that's too bad. And then <laughs> I reached over, grabbed my computer, because I had a laptop or a tablet at the time, an old one. Um, I grabbed it, stood up, said, good luck, and I left. Mm. And he didn't even bat an eyelash because he was still staring at the screen. <laughs> like, you know, I just walked out on, on you and your boss, my boss, quit in front of everybody. And like, I am not doing this. Mm-hmm. You are an idiot, you know, like, or something. You know, and now I'm like, I, God, if he had short-term memory loss, I'm like, I feel bad. <laughs> God, what a jerk, man. And like, you're a moron. I'm walking out. This company sucks, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's all, yeah. I make myself look bad, you know, <laughs> but I, I made it all the way to the parking lot before <laughs> the visual effects supervisor chased me down like he's hanging on the window of my Jeep and like, don't go, don't go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my other friend, Richard Wardlow, and like, I'll remember it to this day because he is so tall. The guy's like six foot eight. I remember he was like craning his neck to peek in the window, like, where are you going, man? Don't go. It's <laughs> like, hey, man, can you just stay for like a day? Just stay to the end of the day. I'm like, hey, man, you saw what happened in there. I cannot deal with that. I cannot help you. Those are my exact words to him. I cannot help you. You know, like I've done, you said do your best. I did my best with an impossible task. I am done. You know, I was like, okay, okay. Uh, promise me you'll just go go home tonight, think about it, and you know, tomorrow, let's talk. You know, you don't have to come in tomorrow, but uh, at least let's talk. You know, promise me you'll call me in the morning. I'm like, all right, I promise you, man. I'll think about it, you know, tonight, and I'll call you. I didn't wait five seconds. The second I got in the door at home, 
I was like on ICQ telling it, hey man, what's out there? What do you got? You know, what's available? Who's hiring? I got to get out of here, right? <clears throat> and I think within you know, a couple of days, uh, one of the guys I worked at UFO with, Jim May, um, not James May from Top Gear, although, you know, I joke about that a lot because they couldn't be more opposite. I'll side I'll segue. James May is known as Captain Slow. My friend Jim May is actually a speed freak. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he hooked me up with uh, Dave Takamura over at um, BSG VFX. You know, that was the, uh, the in-house name at Universal. It was mm-hmm. Universal BSG VFX. And Takamura called me while uh, uh, on a day that I went back to Amalgamated because I figured, like, I don't owe these guys two weeks, but I'll give it to them because I really like these guys. You know, Derry Frost, the guy who owned the company, um, a Brit by the way. Mm. Uh, I forget what part of England he's from, but um, yeah, he founded Amalgamated Pixels with uh, some other people, brought in uh, Mike Morreale, another producer I really like working with, a winemaker, by the way. Like, all these people have different hobbies that make them really interesting. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just like, you're not just a business guy, you're not just a producer, you're not whatever. Mike makes his own wines, and they're really good, <laughs> you know, apparently. And he teaches other people to make wine. Uh, other guys at the company... Um, uh, uh, Grant Boucher, who, uh, actually as, you know, he's, he's a visual effects artist, um, you know, started out with Lightwave and helped make Messiah and all these other programs and stuff like that. Really interesting technical guy, but really, uh, kind of a, a writer, uh, producer type, you know, I don't want to say wannabe, but he definitely has that skill, you know, mm-hmm. so like, you know, you miss your calling, you know, <laughs> like, uh, the guys I met at that company, they may have butted heads, you know, we may have butted heads, but they're all really super cool. Hmm. Uh, and I'd worked for him any, any, I actually worked for Mike Morreale several times after that and Derry, um, even though he folded the company later, but I ended up at BSG just as they were, uh, trying to wrap up that big casino projection project. And they were in a, they were in this crazy, um, crazy bind because Gary Hutzel, who also passed away um, earlier this year in March, uh, inject this right away because I really miss that guy. If it wasn't for that guy, I wouldn't have gotten my two Emmy nominations. I wouldn't have gotten two VES awards. That guy included me in so much stuff that every other producer in the world would probably have just said, no, 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 we got it. Do it. Just do what I say. Gary was completely the opposite. And he was just like, bring me a challenge and let me shoot at it (laughs) and like Mm -hmm. chew on it forever. Um, but yeah, Gary brought me in when, when they were in a real bind that they, uh, they had some pretty pronounced failures in trying to get the animation of centurions on the show to be of a particular level or quality. And I can kind of understand that because structurally, uh, the centurions were not made to animate. They were made to look pretty. Mm-hmm. I mean, the design, the original design, you know, uh, um, if you look at it, it mechanically doesn't have in its arms and its, and, and its neck in particular, it didn't have ranges of freedom that you would expect to get physical performances. You know, if you tried to raise its arm, it would collide with these giant shoulder pads. If you tried to turn its head, it would clunk on its own cowl, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it was all metal. You know, it couldn't turn its head more than 45 degrees if it was built the way it was drawn. Um, so a bunch of these things had to be worked out and stuff like that. And 
I remember Gary, uh, I actually worked, I hadn't met Gary initially, uh, when I worked on the miniseries, cause I actually worked on the miniseries indirectly mm-hmm. through Zoic Studios, um, which was what helped me uh, get hired at BSG VFX in 2008, even though the work I did in the miniseries for freelance was done in like 2002 or 2003. So I ended up actually going in and working with and in front of Gary, you know, full time by 2008 mm-hmm. on, on uh, actually the finale of Battlestar Galactica because they said, uh, this is going to be the first time we're actually going to see Cylons fighting mm-hmm. like hand to hand. They wanted to do this like melee style battle between centurions that were programmed to be good and centurions that were programmed or just regular centurions. And again, you know, I saw it as an opportunity to seduce the process. I would say the centurion that I initially built for the miniseries had been edited, changed, uh, rebuilt, modified, and then scrapped altogether several times. Um, yeah, by, as it was handled by different companies over the years of BSG, seasons one through 4.5. And I saw it as an opportunity to say, what if we took every single model that we have of Centurion from season one through season four, 4.5 and had them all fight? You know, it was rock'em, sock'em robots, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and Gary was like, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> it's like, oh, sweet. This guy isn't going to freak out on me. You know, like, this is awesome. So that's what happened. You know, I got two two or three full shots where they just, they, they clash, you know, half a dozen of them from one side or the other. And it was just me, one guy animating these like 20 centurions in three shots, you know, mm-hmm. which is like ridiculous. It's all keyframed animated. There was no motion capture. Um, that would have really, you know, made it a much faster, probably, you know, more recognizably human motion project. But I was having them do like UFC moves. There's like a hammer fist. There's like a Superman punch. There's like, <laughs> there's all these ridiculous, um, like Kung Fu lock hand arm lock blocking moves. And, a, you know, <laughs> like, and it's all just so noisy and just cluttered that, you know, you really have to slow it down to pick it out. And like, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a, whatever you call it. That's an arm bar. <laughs> you know, there's these ridiculous things that these guys do, you know, like, um, but yeah, you brought me in to do that. We finished the finale, and you know, you actually said to me, "I'm like, yeah, d- d- keep your keep your uh, options open because uh, if we get uh, all these other BSG things in the pipeline, you know, there was Blood and Chrome, which was a, a one-off movie, which mm-hmm. was actually evolved from a web series, and then Caprica, which uh, which prematurely ended before it got you know a season two, mm-hmm. uh, and then we got three seasons of Defiance." Uh, in, in between working on different pilots and stuff like that, an occasional pilot, uh, we, we pretty much stuck to uh, either BSG-related projects or Defiance. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I know Gary's going to, if he could hear this, he'd really rankle in it. But I always said, at one time I said about Defiance that, oh, God, this show is dumb enough to be a hit. You know, and I'm like, Cause it was just, it felt so cobbled together. You know, if somebody wants to sue me about this, the producers or whatever, you know, I hate sitting in front of a camera and saying posh things because you know, Oh, this is a new media experiment. Like really, (laughs) 
As far as I'm concerned, I'm doing the same thing I always do, just busting my ass, trying to make it look pretty. Mm-hmm. You know, like, where's the cross? What crossover? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, what great new media experiment? Uh, you mean we look at the game on YouTube and say, oh, that looks cool. Let's do that. <laughs> Is that your new media experiment? Somebody's going to kill me for this. I know it. But it's true that that they tried really hard to make this, uh, to make Defiance this great new thing. Well, to me, what was great and new about it was that it was just a new show, mm-hmm. you know, that, that had, yeah, it had elements from a video game, but these guys started to really love and care about their characters. And I was like, it started to really get to me. Like, this is really cool, you know? Like, who needs a video game? I know it's great. It's great that they're, they, they had ambitious plans for this video game. They, they put a lot behind it. I'm not a gamer. Mm-hmm. You know, it pains people to hear that. It, it kind of pains me to say it because I feel kind of, when the guys are all playing around in the office, you know, like, oh, man, this is making me dizzy. You know, like the frame rate's just killing me. I can't play this without getting sick. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'd really love to, though. But, yeah, Defiance ended up being, by the third season, uh, it really felt like a family job. Mm-hmm. You know, guys like Tony Curran, you know, um, from people who recognize him instantly. He's kind of like the, uh, the new Gary Oldman because he's been in everything, but nobody knows who he is. You know, which it's kind of a pain in the ass because he's a fun actor to watch no matter mm-hmm. what he's in. Um, but he was in Defiance and he, he has what I call, it's, it's really for me, the, the best single episode of television I've ever worked on, mm-hmm. including Battlestar Galactica, including Caprica. You know, it was... It's an episode where his character, Daytac Tar, um, really makes these epic moves and sacrifices as a father. He cuts his own arm off, man. <laughs> I mean, like, come on. In this, you know, suicide mission, he's cutting his own arm off to save his son and the, and the town. Oh, like, and they, they, this is a cool, this is how much people believed in the episode, at least at the producer level. And the temp audio for the episode, they had a Doors song, you know, when the music's over, you know, this it's really cool song. But, you know, we expected by the edit, they you know, they just make some, you know, similar sounding, you know, pay like 20 grand to some guy, to, or mm-hmm. not 20 grand, but pay a couple grand to a guy, compose something for me, and blah, blah, blah. It makes sure it's kind of Doors sounding, and maybe yeah. it'll be in a Defiance alien language. They bought the song. Oh, wow. So I'm like, I'm watching this thing on the Friday night, and I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, like, they paid for the song, I'm like, yeah, you know, like, by the end of it, you know, but the beginning of the show, uh, there was a joke in the studio that I, I kind of made and kind of caught on with some guys, that I was the most fired person on the project, <laughs> that uh, because of the budget constraints, they could only bring me in for a couple of weeks at a time, like, mm-hmm. say, hey, man, we need you to help finish episode one. Uh, it's just for three weeks. Can you come in? I'm like, yeah, sure. Hell yeah, always. All right. And so I came in three weeks, left for a week. I'm like, hey, man, they really like uh, this one shot, um, but they want to redo something. On one. And then we got episode two and blah, 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 this, the whole spiel. And I'm like, D- Dave, just call me when you need me. Don't give me the <laughs> spiel. Just call me. Give me a time. I'll come in. I think it happened like five or six times mm-hmm. by the time we were done with season one. That, you know, I kept... It was like, I'm Wesley from The Princess Bride. Hey, it was good working with you. Most like to kill you in the morning, you know, go away. <laughs> so like five or six times I come in, leave, come in, leave, come in, leave. And, you know, by season two, I'm like, 
you know, I hope you're really tired of that because we'll just bring it in full time. It's easier. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, it wasn't Gary's fault. It wasn't Dave's fault. It was just the production and the numbers. And when it worked out in the end that uh, season two was going to have a lot of character animation mm-hmm. in certain episodes. Uh, stuff I'm still really proud of. Um, <coughs> but yeah, they finally meant, yeah, we need to keep him here full time because if you keep, if the producers and the the other writers keep asking for this stuff, you know, then we should, you know, bring on someone full time. And that's, that's, you know, by season three, which was the last season, you know, I, it wasn't just character animation. I was doing full environments and effect shots and I cut off Daytac's arm. That was, that was the one thing <laughs> I, you know, this is sad to say, but yeah, I finally got to meet all the actors on a show that I worked on because Gary died. Mm. They showed up to his funeral, you know, the, almost the entire cast or, you know, a lot of the people that we were familiar with, uh, Tony Coran, Grant Buller, um, uh, Anna Hops, uh, God, who else showed up? There's a couple other people that showed up. Um, all, a bunch of the other writers and producers. It was one of the first times you, you got to meet people that you've been staring at mm. for like a year, you know, and I actually walked up to Tony and I, I said, you know, like, you know, I'm really sorry about your arm. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy who cut it off. And I'm like, Oh man, it's great to meet you, mate. You know, I'm like, Oh, this is a terrible circumstances to meet. But you know, it was like, it's a good closure for that show, mm. you know, which I ended up really loving working on. Yeah. And it was also when it comes to the internet, it was one of those shows that I'm just a visual effects guy, man. But there are fans of the show that just were so eager to talk to anybody who had something to do with the show mm-hmm. that we were chatting, you know, like, uh, on either Twitter or whatever, or Instagram, you know, and just like, oh man, this is great. That looked awesome. And like, how'd you do this and how'd you do that? And, you know, it was an, it was a neat entry and entry level into the show that for the first time, Universal didn't try to control. Mm-hmm. You know, previously it would be previously on Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> and that's not a word of a joke. You know, they had pretty stringent policies about what you could and couldn't post mm-hmm. or even use, you know, in terms of like demo reel material or website portfolio material. You know, it, was like it had to be approved and blah, 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 or at least some people, you know, had that kind of policy. But by the time we got to Defiance, Universal sent out a letter that I remember reading that said, we appreciate everything you do on social media as long as you don't. You know, they had this sh- very short list of requirements. It said, don't spoil anything for anybody. Don't give out any uh, any material that's covered under non-disclosure, you know, which is basically budgets and all that kind of crap. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it's fair game. Everything's fair game after the show airs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is kind of unprecedented after working here for almost 10 years, you know, and all this other stuff. And I'm like, even at UFO, you know, we were joking that we should, it was in the era of MySpace. And then I told them that we should just make MySpace profiles for all these creatures and stuff that, like, like, they're, like they're all friends and they all crap on each other and, like, or they joke with one another. It'd be hilarious. And, like, nobody ever went for it. Mm. And I was like, no, 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 we don't do that kind of thing. And like, nobody cares. And I'm like, yeah, but it'd be freaking hilarious. <laughs> you know, like, and cheap, you know? Yeah. Jesus, this is MySpace. It's all free, free crap. And, like, come on. Um, you know, there's not much of a fan base out there, but it, you know, it would keep a lot of the trolls off your back, you know, that we, we get the joke, you yeah. know? So, you know, for Universal to do that on a project that big, because at the time it was their number one rated show on Friday nights. Mm. And I was like, yeah, in front of wrestling, 
anything. I'll watch anything in front of wrestling. Because <laughs> like, like, as soon as wrestling comes on, I'm turning that TV off. You know, no offense to you fans of wrestling, but, you know, I, geez, I just don't watch it. Hmm. You know, like I want my sci-fi and then I go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, up till, up, on, up until Defiance, I was, you know, I, my entire career had been sci-fi, you know, fantasy you know, weird horror or stuff like that. And now mm-hmm. I'm working on girl boss, you know, which doesn't <laughs> have a, doesn't have a, uh, it doesn't have a visual effects focus or feel, but it's been really interesting. And the project before that though, was really cool. Uh, and I always, I, I tell people about this cause it's the most cathartic creative experience I've ever had in visual effects was working on, uh, Aquarius, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that David Duchovny show. Yeah. About the uh, Charlie Manson yeah, investigation. Yeah, about the murders and specifically uh, the period in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, 60s, 68, 67, 68 Los Angeles. And you look at L.A. downtown in 68, there's nothing there. Hmm. It is a pristine skyline. All you see is that great, that beautiful Deco CG hall. Mm-hmm. Or not Art Deco, but uh, I forget what style they call that. Um, but a really great architectural statement standing alone like that like even when i drive by downtown now i'll look at city hall i won't look at downtown yeah you know because there's a good gap between them two the the two places because I, you know, I had to clean off all the radio the antenna dishes all the cell phone crap that's on that that city hall and mm-hmm. then cut down all the buildings in the sky plates that we had mm-hmm. and the most cathartic thing ever deleting 30 to 50 percent of the traffic on all the freeways because <laughs> there, there was a great note it's a fantastic way to 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 really uh, let people know that this is a, a different period uh is to, to reduce traffic yeah so in all of the aerial plates that i got i got to work on a lot of aerial shots establishers for aquarius and i got to put in period cars and delete new cars as well as delete whole like there are so many parking lots on the top of buildings so many parking garages now and if you look at old la photos none of that was there Mm. you parked on the street or there was a dedicated parking lot or you didn't park yeah you know and they didn't have those big bendy buses you didn't have uh you know priuses everywhere because man those things stick out like a sore thumb Mm. in an aerial plate you know like (laughs) that's a prius you know like it's just Boom! There's one car you can pick out from twenty thousand feet in the air. It's that car because that butt ugly rear end <laughs> when that thing lights up, man. I'm like, that's a Prius. Ugh. No offense. <laughs> uh, it's not Jeremy Clarkson here. Uh, but yeah, that was that was previous to working on Girl Boss and a couple other uh, Netflix shows. Working on Aquarius was the biggest shift I've ever had. Uh, in the kind of work I'm doing in visual effects because it's all super photo-based, photo-real. Um, uh, really, it has to be period. Like I, I actually had to rebuild the Ambassador Hotel mm-hmm. because if you look at it now, it's a school. Yeah. Uh, and it's very, you know, modernist, refaced, if not completely demolished and re- reconstructed. Yeah, they took down um, a lot of it, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. You know, and it's resurfaced to be very modern. A mm-hmm. lot of the windows are gone in certain places. The whole parts of the building are gone. The basic structure is there, but they've altered the facade so much and the grounds so much that I had to rebuild a period accurate or mostly period accurate Ambassador Hotel. 
if you look at the shot that's in the show now, let's talk about this because it's it's the only thing that bugs me about the decision making of the show, and it, there was no way to get around it really. There was a sign for the Coconut Grove, mm-hmm. the club, in the, in the hotel that makes it that really made it recognizable because otherwise it's just it's it's a rather you know simple building you know it's kind of an H pattern and with bent little uh, uh, pieces at the end and yeah if you were in the air you would recognize it as the Ambassador Hotel but mm-hmm. you know this was a shot uh, coming down Sunset Boulevard and you couldn't see because of some of the obstructions you couldn't see. Uh, from the angle they took as well, that sign, it was facing away from the camera. Mm-hmm. So the only other thing we did for the shot that, that was really like, we got to do this, it's got to be recognizable as Coconut Grove, Ambassador Hotel. I had to move the sign so it's facing the camera, and that puts it in the wrong place. And I also had to move the hotel mm-hmm. uh, further, closer, to the, uh, closer into the frame of the shot because, you know, the, the plate that they could use the you could recognize the old the the original building, but it was all the way on frame right. So I'm like, oh man, well you know if I re repaint the grounds you know, to shorten them up a little bit so it's kind of facing the street a little more, I put a whole bunch of people walking around because it was around the the Kennedy assassination mm-hmm. episode. Um, so there would have been people all over the place. Eh, it kind of covers up the fact that it's kind of in the wrong position, but it is definitely downtown. Or, or not downtown, but that that strip. You know, take away a few of the modern buildings. Again, reduce traffic. Put in period cars. You know, and then, uh, yeah, okay, I buy it. And then the the shot tilts away to downtown. You know, over, you know, it flies over the ambassador and pans to downtown. And then same thing. You know, just take away all these modern buildings. And then, I remember there was one building someone pointed out exactly like. Leave that building because that's definitely that was definitely here at the time. Mm-hmm. But that's the only one that somebody picked out for sure. Just leave it. So it was like there was one of those shots. I was like, wow, this is like I could get used to this because it was really an interesting thing, you know, to take back um, an entire city. Mm-hmm. You know, with it, we couldn't do all the research. I mean, we could have done all the real heavy research to say this building was here, this building was there. Um, like the Brown Derby um, mm-hmm. it was right across the angle that we got from the ambassador hotel hmm. that's gone. And that's one of the buildings I was like, can we please put that back in? Cause it was so good. This big old Brown hat just sitting across <laughs> the street. And we're like, this is awesome. You know, just something so cheesy, like, you know, like big Randy's donut, you know, something mm-hmm. that recognizable would have yeah. been perfect. But you know, they, I think they, they settled on, well, uh, we don't have the time to do the full rebuild of that building. So why don't you just erase what's there, which basically is just a strip mall a very new style to split level strip mall. I covered that up and then restored the Gaylord hotel, uh, which was just right next to it. Um, take off all the air conditioning, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then that, <laughs> then that, that kind of looks like it's an old building again. I'm like, all right. But that was, that was one of the more memorable, you know, tough shots on that show. You know, like I wish we got a little more time to work on it, you know, just to, really kiss in that lighting and the old building. Cause that building had a funny color that you couldn't tell what color it was because all the modern photos are, are of it disheveled and the paints faded and all the old photos have a color cast to them from being old photos that you can't mm-hmm. tell what the color of the building is. <laughs> and I'm like, so you kind of make up this weird paint job in your head that it's, Oh, well, you know, it doesn't look objectionable. And then there's the, the color grade that gets done after it comes out of our studio. Yeah. You know, cause somebody has to color grade the whole episode and then there's that color change and like, 
well, we're crossing our fingers that this doesn't look horrible. <laughs> you know, like, it, yeah, it's just, it sticks out in my memory as one of those things that, like, my career has gone from, in CGI anyway, from cheesy monsters to, you know, these period buildings, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the weirdest things we did in a um, in Aquarius that that was more <laughs> my regular spiel was I cut the guy's ear off. You know, there's this scene where uh, Manson is going crazy and this guy tied up. He's trying to make him talk about something or rather give up, you know, some kind of information. I haven't watched the episode yet. But he uses a samurai sword to cut this dude's ear off. And I got that <laughs> shot. And I was like, that's gross. <laughs> you know, like, because I actually see the little snippet of ear, flip, you know, it just flips away. <laughs> like, yeah. And it takes off a little of his hair. And then you know, I was like animating his hair and the blood streaming down the guy's face. And like, yeah, this sounds familiar. I've <laughs> been here before. Um, but yeah, as, you know, as things go, I can't really talk about what we're doing on Girl Boss. But. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very similar to what we did in Aquarius. You know, to, it's not as, as period. Um, there's things we have to do to make technology look sort of period, mm-hmm. but you know, it's it's all within the realm of you know uh, storytelling. You know, it's got to be of a certain year of cell phone, and it's got to be a certain year's Macintosh or something like that. You know, there's technological fixes, right? Uh, it's an interesting, you know, way to work, you know, mm. that, uh, that Netflix, everything is 4k. Yeah. I mean, we, at, at UFO, we were still working, uh, up until I left there, not even HD, you know, um, 1920, 1280, we were working, you know, lower, the lower end of HD 1280 mm-hmm. and then it gets resized, you know, but then, it, but it actually shows that standard def, you know, I'm like, why this is you know way more effort than you know than, than it's going to end up being seen you know but now you have these 4k projects and you know aquarius was still uh i think we were working just straight hd 1920 1080 but the technology we have when you're working you know it's like oh this is you know it's perfect you know it's like when you when you just got everything figured out they crank the resolution on you, you mm-hmm. know, like now it's 4k and everything's slow again, you know, <laughs> like, wow, we're back, blazing a trail into the nineties, you know, in terms of speed, you know, it's just, but you know, the, the, as soon as we get, you know, new hardware and it'll feel like the good old days again. And I, I made a joke the other day that, uh, the resolution, cause some of the, some of the plates on some of these new shows, uh, with the new, you know, new lenses, new cameras and stuff, they came out so clear. Mm-hmm. I was joking that this this plate is so clean I can read people's minds, you know, <laughs> instead of just reading like text, you know. I can tell what this guy's thinking, you know, like god, oh, I can see my house from here, you know. <laughs> Which is yeah, 4K. If anybody ever works in visual effects at, at 4K, you know what I'm talking about. And when you made that first preview on your computer, I'm like, "Jeez, am I going to go to lunch and come back?" you know, like god. Yeah. But, you know, the hardware is picking up speed, so mm-hmm. it's all good. Yeah. And um, you uh, are a comic book creator as well. This yeah. This is another thing that I was you wondering, do. I was going to say, what are we going to talk about comics? Yeah, now <laughs> on to... Uh, so you want to talk about your comics, too, you know? Like, <laughs> I got to tell you, like, um, well, on the thing that we were, the little Black Wraith thing we worked together on, yeah. um, that, for me, represented... 
a, a massive jump in the quality of work that I wanted to do. Mm. You know, it was like, what did you say? Like, I wanted it to be kind of like Silver Age Steranko. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, man, I was like, that's a tall order. <laughs> I'm like, you do know who you're talking to, right? Like, uh, let me get, I think Steranko's still alive, right? No. Um, but yeah, that, that, that for me represented, you know, because I'm in a, my own noir book is, mm-hmm. it, it began as kind of a digital book anyway, but the first issue of my own book it has some gray tone in it. Mm-hmm. And when you said Steranko and you said Black Wraith and like Black Wraith and it's BW, that's black and white. You know, what can I get away with? That's it's either zero or one, you know, like what can you render at that point? So you challenge yourself and say, all right, no more grays, you know, no, no more halftones. No, what can you do with that zero and one, Mm -hmm. you know, and can people feel gray? You know, can you make someone feel the color red when you're just drawing in black and white? Mm-hmm. Staranko could do that. You know, like I'm looking at his old stuff or uh, even my favorite, Al Williamson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and just in terms of ink rendering, I'm like, this is all black and white, but I'm seeing color. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can tell that's a red pool of blood sitting right there or that's a blue sky. And this guy just uses black and white. And that's hallucinatory to like talk about it like that, but... You know, you feel the skill in, in the marriage of storytelling and, and the artwork. And when it comes to black and white, you know, if they match well enough, you've got your reader seeing color. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I felt like, you know, if I didn't achieve that on that Black Wraith, you know, little, what was it, six pages? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still one of my favorite, like, this is where I started doing, this is black and white. Right. Don't, don't run away from it. Yeah. You know, because if you can't do it there... You know, there ain't a bit of colorist that can help you, you know. <laughs> you know, like, who's a famous colorist? Uh, <clears throat> like, what, that's, what's that studio? One of those, those hot shot coloring studios. And yeah, you can't do it in black and white. They cannot save you, mm-hmm. you know. So I know a lot of people would disagree, but like, oh, a good colorist will take care of this. And they're like, sure, buddy. <laughs> you know, if, You've, you've, if that's what you think of your coloring, then you're actually altering the black and white art as well. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't save anything. It's, no, you want each level it. to have its own foundation. You don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to fix it later. Fix it in post. Fix it in post. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the attitude. You know, like, yeah. I got used to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember working on that, thinking, okay, my own books are going to benefit from this. Mm. You mm-hmm. know, they, oh, to a great degree. Yeah. You know, because I did two things art-wise. <coughs> I had bought a new Cintiq, mm-hmm. and I'd already been using it when I started working on that. But I hadn't quite, you know, really dived in to, all right, how am I really using it? I, I dove in as deep as, how am I sitting when I'm using it? Because, mm-hmm. you know, a typical artist, you know, you slouch or you're schlepping around your room. <laughs> Things on your stomach and your belly, and like, ah, I'm uncomfortable. No wonder you're uncomfortable, man. You're compressing your back, your, your lumbar is out of alignment, you know, your ankles are curled up into your stupid desk, you know, you just <laughs> look like a pretzel. Like, of course, you're not comfortable. So, yeah, I reevaluated everything. And uh, the only other thing I changed that significantly, you know, like, 
and working, this is embarrassing to say this, but I doubled the resolution mm. of the file. Mm-hmm. The typical, you know, Kablam template or the print template is 100% size, 7.5, 10.5, 300 pixels, or 266, maybe 300 some odd pixels an inch. I doubled it to 600 mm-hmm. and doubled the size of the page, you know, but kept the proportions. And working with, you know, the Cintiq at that resolution on my computer, you know, I had good enough graphics to handle it. Um, it changed everything. You know, like the fidelity of the line that I was getting, the fidelity of cross-hatching, just everything. You know, like it's, it's such a no-brainer thing that I avoided for so long because I just like the, you know, performance of this is the fixed resolution template and everything is super fast right down to the color. Like coloring everything now for me is mm-hmm. like, all right, I got to take it down a notch and then color it. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's excessive at that point. It's, yeah. it's not about the fidelity of the line anymore. That, that'll get subsampled to the print size just fine. Mm-hmm. But it's getting, it's having something to work with to, to reduce later that really, I don't know, to me it's kind of magical. <laughs> you know, something happens in that reduction that, you know, some people say it's a waste, but it's just like working in 4K. Mm-hmm. You know, like some of these shows I'm working on now, you know, like there is no reason for this to be, projected in force to be seen in 4k nothing about this situation comedy benefits from it being 4k but working on it i'm like i don't have to you mean i don't have to use photoshop to up res up a, a, a background still because you didn't photograph it in focus <laughs> you know so at 4k it's out, kind of out of focus but at hd it's perfectly sharp mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like when you reduce it you know it magically begets you know, gets higher quality well yeah. That's not what happens, but, you know, the reduction from something that's higher resolution gives you range, mm-hmm. you know, in the, you know, in projection, you can, if it's projected at HD, you shot it in 4K. We did this on Defiance all the time. You could go back to your raw four or even higher 5K plate, push in on it and you get the composition you should have gotten, you know? So a lot of guys, like a, a lot of these DPs are trying to be smart about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, I don't know what the director or whatever wants of this and storytelling wise, you know, we can get the whole scene in there and later, well, let's just push in, you know, we got the focus, you know, it's good, you know, and people are doing that now to great effect, Mm -hmm. you know, like even even for CG, remember in Defiance, we had these weird prosthetic, digital prosthetic effects where a jaw would extend and the fangs would come out and tongues would all this other stuff. And the move and and this and the final product was always HD, but they shot a lot of these critical plates at 5K, and they t- specifically for me, you know, because they knew I was going to work on these things. And like Gary said, yeah, we're going to shoot this at that maximum resolution we can get on our Sony's or Alexas or whatever they were shooting at, because those are going to turn into the textures we're going to use to make the CG heads mm-hmm. and the CG mouths and teeth and all this other stuff. So by the time it get, gets projected at HD, it's tack sharp. Mm-hmm. You know, even though at 5K there's you know, there's a little focus pull here, a little there, but you know the reduction you just oh yeah this, you don't see it, you know, and like uh, just you know, I made the same you know application in my own comics. You know after the Black Wraith, mm-hmm. it's like all right my noir book benefits from this and that that crispness even on comiXology like i looked at one of my books on comiXology and was like holy crap that's so clean you know like even though when i look at it it's like 
uh, I should have been tighter here, tighter there. I'm like, nope, works out fine. You know, mm-hmm. on my iPad or not, I don't have an iPad, but on the highest resolution tablet that I have, I'm like, oh, this looks awesome. <laughs> you know? uh, and now that I switched to a Microsoft Surface, which I bought just to get a write-off mm-hmm. for 2016, but now uh, I actually finished earlier today penciling in a week what it used to take me like two weeks on my Cintiq. Mm. You know, like it's not that the the working area is bigger. It's not that it's not just that the Cintiq is tethered. It's it's just the the proportions of the Microsoft Surface. It's a slightly larger than my Cintiq and but perfect proportions of a comic page that when I'm using that that's uh, the Microsoft Surface um, vertically, I can sit anywhere comfortably, you know, like my legs crossed. I, and it's my natural position for drawing when I have a tab, or mm-hmm. not a tab, but when I have an actual pad, a drawing book, you know, or my regular sketchbook or whatever, you know, non-digital media. That's my natural position to draw is seated naturally, leg crossed. The thing is on my lap uh, and I'm not tethered to anything, you know, so I can sit in a Starbucks or be at the, my favorite place to draw is at the Huntington Library. Mm-hmm. I can take it there and sit comfortably. And the, the battery life, battery life's not the greatest, but you know I, the, the the cord that it comes with is comfortable to carry around. I can I can power up anywhere basically. And you know it's it's I, it's weird, you know. Like why did I avoid this? You know, I kept <laughs> every store I've ever been in where they have a Microsoft Surface. I'll sit down and like yeah yeah this is uh, this is a great toy. I don't need one. I got a Cintiq and go home and like blah 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 blah. I hate Microsoft. Blah 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 blah. The truth is, the current version of, of Microsoft Windows Pro for me, like I'm running 8.1 on my desktop, that's the best version of Windows I've ever worked. And mm. I still bitch about it because I'm so used to bitching about it. But the truth is, it's the best version of Windows I've ever used. And now using uh, Surface with Windows 10, like it's like having a tablet and a laptop. Mm-hmm. And I've never owned a laptop because, oh, this is stupid, it's an expensive toy, I don't need this. I'm not a writer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Why do I need this? This is crap. I'm like, eh, it's just a toy. But no, this thing has become, you know, an instant, you know, instant indispensable. Yeah. You know, just like my previous Samsung tablet. Like, I, 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 remember, uh, I think I remember um, that Black Wraith story uh, on my previous S Pen, <clears throat> S Pen based Samsung tablet. I laid out that entire six pages. Mm-hmm. And did all the concept stuff on my tablet. Right. So it became this like, it, it instantly the form factor was it doesn't even weigh a pound. I can take it anywhere and draw exactly in physically. It's not hurting me, you know, like a physiologist would say. You know, as an artist, you have terrible posture anyway, you know, most people. But yeah, that, that tablet was became instantly indispensable for my comics work because I could be anywhere, have an idea, whip on my tablet, draw it, block in colors, and even in some apps, have some animation, if it was an animation concept. Mm-hmm. You know, just really basic keyframe animation, drawn layers and overlays and whatever. And include hyperlinks and data and all this other stuff, all the metadata that you needed, you know, like research. If I went to a web page, like this picture or like this YouTube video, you know, everything gets collated and wrapped up and sent to the cloud and all this other stuff. And now the Surface 10 does that times two because I can run all my desktop applications that I use to run and make comics. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a, I already say that in some of my early comics commentary that uh, 
everything I do to make comics is open source. It's all free. Yeah. I've never paid for a single piece of software that I use to make my comics ever. Uh, except for the fonts, you know, if I need, need a great font, you know, but the, you know, you pay five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks for some a giant massive fonts and you're yeah. done. You yeah. Know? Uh, but otherwise the production software, you know, I do everything in GIMP, you know, visually and I, uh, lay out everything in ink space. And if I really need to do multi-page books, like dense multi-page books with references and index, and blah, blah, blah. I can use Scribisk for that. Cause it's like cheap quark, you know, mm-hmm. not even cheap, free quark. You know, or free InDesign. It's not as not nearly as, you know, well supported, feature rich, and blah blah blah. And people complain about open source programs being abandoned all the time. But the truth is, it's all of it still works. Yeah. You know, um, I'm not doing the Webster Merriam Dictionary. You know, where I need cross reference indexed, super style sheet driven. You know, ultra formatting power of InDesign and Quark. You know, I spent decades using Quark, you know, uh, working at newspapers and magazines. And, like, I never want to touch that program again. <laughs> you know, like, it was, it was, I loved using it, but it represented kind of a, a money sink mm-hmm. for a lot of these publishers. You know, updating stuff, getting contracts, now the creative cloud. You know, it's really inexpensive to get access to these high-end programs that every professional has to have in their toolbox and blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm not judging you, your book on what software you used. Mm-hmm. You know, so if that's the case, you know, why not be a cheapskate? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, why am I? If you're not going to judge me on that, I'm like, okay, it's for other professionals that judge you. Yeah, you know, especially I remember this one guy in Anaheim. I think he worked at Pixar. No offense against Pixar, but when I told this guy I used GIMP. To make my comics, you kind of like, oh, <laughs> like, like you recoil when somebody brings out snails, you know, for you to eat and you're not into that. You're like, oh, snails. <laughs> Ew. Well, some people like eating those. And I was like, he actually gave me that, that, yeah, that, that kind of condescending. I don't know if it was condescending, but, you know, I was just like, so what, dude? Yeah, you work at Pixar. I don't care. You know, I know guys that work there, too, that aren't, <laughs> aren't going to be dicks to me. And <laughs> But yeah, you gave me this this kind of well, you know. I guess it doesn't matter what you use. Like, yeah, I guess too, pal. <laughs> you know, like I guess. You know, like what? Come on. You know, I must have been twice this guy's age. You know, like yeah, you're hot stuff, but come on. Yeah, you're gonna learn this the hard way, pal. That it ain't the software. You know, like anybody with three hundred bucks, or and now anybody with fifty bucks can sign on, download this thing, and say I use blah blah blah. That and another 50 bucks will get the same thing to somebody else, you know, who's actually better than you. So what's your point? You know, Uh, you run into that all the time and it's never going to not happen. It's such an enduring thing that, hey, look at my book. Can you tell me what software I used? (laughs) You know, like, oh, you can't. Ah, Well, everybody uses Photoshop. Wrong answer. I didn't use that. That means... It's not important. Yeah. So, but it happens all the time. And I'm like, the, today, I just lie to people. You know, like, I, I was straight up lie to a guy. Like, somebody, somebody who's just obviously either clueless or really, really egotistical about some, some aspect of comics or whatever. Oh, yeah, I use that too. Yeah, yeah. I just nod my head. You're like, blah, blah, blah. Like, you're not listening anyway. So like I might as well just lie to you. You can't tell the difference. <laughs> you know? Like, you know, like this is a joke. 
You know, like, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, I'm like, I have, yeah, I don't need to puff up my chest for this guy. I'm like, I don't need to get pissed off at this. And just, would you please go away? <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll disappear soon enough into the ether. And once you realize that making comics is actually work, you, you'll figure it out yeah. and you'll quit, you know, like, like so many other guys. I'm like, I remember we, you, you were saying like, you know, at some point this became just an expensive hobby, you know, or not expensive, but you know, it, it really is kind of a hobby. It's something enriching. I got to do something creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go through that fortnightly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that anxiety, angst, creative roller coaster, you know, or whatever. Mm. Uh, let's call it the Mulholland drive of LA creativity. Cause <laughs> you just keep zigging and zagging and wondering, am I going to fly off the cliff? Should I drive off the cliff? And like, I should just stop. No, I should go get gas. It's just a, a whirlwind of anxiety. You know, when you think about this, isn't making me money, this is costing me money. Yeah. But I love doing it. Mm. And, oh my God, that came out beautiful. And you know, yeah, I think that's a, a constant struggle for a lot of people in, in, uh, in creativity and especially in, in the comic stuff, I see it a lot, especially when you're talking to people at conventions and there's this real sense that, you know, we have to be a businessman with this yeah. stuff, but you don't. You don't have to be a businessman. You don't have to, you know, it, it's hard to make money. It's a shrinking market for a start. Yeah. And it's it's hard to make, you know, a lot of the times you're printing books out and taking them to shows and you're making in pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. If that, if that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you factor in lunch and you're done for. <laughs> and um, I bought a sandwich. Yeah. I'm done for. <laughs> and it's you know you have to reevaluate and, and yeah. decide is am I doing this because I want to make money? Am I doing this because I want this to be my career? Or am I doing this because yeah. I have an itch that needs to be scratched? And well, you know, both you and I work in you know entertainment and entertainment related day jobs, mm-hmm. and that happens a lot, and it's happening more and more. And it's that, uh, I remember reading, one of my favorite books is this book um, by Nassem Taleb, and it's about the stock market, or or about randomness in particular, as a concept. And he discusses his time on Wall Street as being tainted and painted by the survivorship bias, in that he reached the, the pinnacle, basically, of quantitative, you know, stock market trading he was right up there with all the billionaires you know working these deals and doing all this stuff and always thinking at some point he's gonna blow up that was his term i'm gonna blow up i'm gonna fail right everybody does it it happens to everybody you can't avoid it it's gonna happen to you you know the the odds the odds say it'll happen but everyone denies it you know it it can't happen to me it Mm -hmm. can't happen to me you know but the opposite is true in that all of them think it will happen to me and that I'm going to succeed and blah, 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 blah. And this is the town where, uh, everybody, you know, the, the, the biggest joke is that you walk into Starbucks, there's 20 screenwriters in there, you know, like, what do y'all do for a living? Oh, uh, uh, I'm a barista. Uh, oh, I work at, I work tables at a local restaurant, blah, blah, blah. But what I really want to do is direct, you know, that kind of crap. <clears throat> We're guys that actually work you know, that, that have had day jobs, they, they're sustaining day jobs to a point to, for the most part. And the other, the, the we have, we, we are survivors in the fact that, you know, we're in a town where it's very difficult to get to that pinnacle, you know, that, that level of work, you know, that level of, you know, I'm working on big budget and whatever, 
you know, that self-validating, you know, what do you do, you know, question, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, you know, it becomes uh, the, that survivorship instinct takes over and that I sh- it's something that says I should be doing something that'll, that'll give me a shot. I should have something in my back pocket no matter what. When Steven Spielberg comes to call, I'm going to be ready. You know, yeah. everybody has that that bias and that that tint that that aching, you know, thing in the back of your head. And like, it could happen to me. It could happen to me, man. Why not me? You know, like. Uh, but you feel it more in places like L.A. Just like Nassim Taleb said, you feel it more in more in places like New York if you work in the stock market. You know, in here, it's if you work in entertainment, you better have something. You better have a hustle. What's your side hustle? You know, our mm-hmm. good friend Carl. You know, like he's 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 an expert at that. And it's, I gotta have I gotta have a thing. You know, I gotta have my elevator pitch ready to go at a moment's notice. You know, mm-hmm. I gotta rehearse my thing. What's my angle? You know, people think like you were saying. You know, like you have to be good at the business. And I'm like, well. It's getting to a point where you really don't, you mm-hmm. know, like, because you can hire people to do that crap, you know, like, I can hire anybody to do my marketing and social media. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Jesse, and talking. I'm, I'm yeah. probably going to have to split this into two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but funnily enough, I feel like we could talk more about this. And maybe yeah, we, some we barely got into comics, yeah. really. <laughs> just, like, yakking <laughs> about my, I'm so interesting, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm just working out my demons. <laughs> <laughs> This is like this is oh, it's an interview. I thought I was going to pay you for therapy. Yeah, I feel like I should have the uh, the Lucy yeah. five cents. Sign the doctor is in. Yeah. yeah, the doctor is in. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming in. All right, thanks for having me. I appreciate. Yeah, uh, yeah. And where can people find you and your work if they want to find out more? Uh, yeah, I think if you just do an author search on Comicsology, Jesse Mesa Tovis, or Trouble Guts and Noir, and I have an anthology on uh, that I'm working on now. Number three, uh, pages of eight. It's basically just short eight-page stories, and there are three three different arcs. Mm-hmm. Um, no introductions, no explanation. You just drop you in. You get eight pages. You either like it or get out. <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, pages of eight, Trouble, Guts, and Noir. And then other stuff I've done, you know, for you, actually. Yeah, well, uh, I actually was thinking about it. So we've worked yeah, together for, more than I realized. We've done the... Um, yeah. For Nick's comics, Nick's uh, comics. a little little mm-hmm. stint on there. Uh, your own Black Wraith story, mm-hmm. uh, uh, our Samurai book. Yeah, uh, that was the Samurai, the graphic novel, which yeah. is still out there in bits and pieces. Yes, I, I guess <laughs> <laughs> you can find that in some shows. In some shows, in some shops. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Otherwise, uh, uh, please watch Girl Boss on Netflix because <laughs> I'm tired of working on shows getting canceled. Even mm. though it just happens to everybody, but. Yeah, and I have friends who are doing a sound on that. So, yeah, yeah. please watch that because I'm yeah. sure they'd like to continue working too. It's the, the adventures of uh, the creator of the website Nasty Gal, Sophia Amoruso. I hope I'm saying her name right. Uh, really, really interesting millennial success story. And now kind of more interesting now that it's not so much a success story as, you know, a, a story about the, her recent bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least the company's bankruptcy because she's not, she's not all Nasty Gal. Uh, whatever but yeah it's working on it bits and pieces i get to see because i don't get to see the full edits it's it's funny you know it's got a kind of an edge to it that you know it's i think you know people of the cell phone generation would truly enjoy (laughs) 
you know, if you grew up in that early era of the first people who were texting, the first people who were really doing stuff on eBay and making all of this happen when there weren't the tools, when there weren't markets, when there weren't investors, it was exciting. It was like, it was like, it was a new frontier, you know, of, you know, basically <laughs> internet fashion and whatever, but it's pretty hilarious, you know, the stuff I've seen. So please watch it. I like working on it. <laughs> thank you, Jesse. All right. Thank you. That's it for this episode. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and you can email us at whoiampodcast at gmail.com or phone at 818-308-4066. You can also find us on iTunes if you want to subscribe there. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and that was This Is Who I Am.